Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. I'm Alex Taipale, a software engineer at Cisco Meraki. And tonight we're excited to be supporting Inforum at the Commonwealth Club and tonight's program with Reshma Sajani, CEO of Girls Who Code. If you aren't familiar with us, Cisco Meraki is the industry leader in cloud-managed IT, creating simple, intelligent solutions that help businesses around the world, big and small, save time and money. All of our technology, including security, wireless access points, switching security cameras, insight data, and API programmability, is easily managed through an intuitive, feature-rich interface, the Meraki dashboard. Um, the dashboard enables you to control, monitor, and manage all of your Meraki technology in one place, embodying our company's mission, work simple. In addition to providing a simpler way to work for our partners around the world, we encourage people to be brave. We believe in pushing boundaries and experimenting so that we can learn from our experiences, failures, and help each other grow. Reshma's popular TED Talk, which inspired her new book, talks about the power of fear, fearing less, failing more, and living bolder, and how we can change the conversation to support women and pursuing bravery over perfection. I think we all have a responsibility to support key conversations that shift our experiences and potential, and I look forward to hearing Reshma's perspective on how Girls Who Code and other inspiring organizations and individuals can encourage bravery over perfection and clear paths for all of us to be our best selves. Thank you for joining us tonight at the Commonwealth Club, an organization we support because of their commitment to hosting conversations on this vital subject and many others. Uh, and now it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speakers, Reshma Sajani, founder and CEO of Girls Who Code and author of the new book, Brave Not Perfect and moderator Molly Wood, host of Marketplace Tech and the podcast Make Me Smarter with Molly and Kai. Please join me in giving a round of applause to our speakers and welcoming them to the Inforum stage. Good evening. Thanks all for being here. And I just want to give like a quick shout out to Alex, who is in fact a self-taught woman who codes. Woo! Yeah. And who could not be more appropriate to no. introduce us tonight. Totally so exciting. Uh, I am Molly and this is Reshma. And we are delighted to have this conversation about Brave Not Perfect, uh, which is this, it's inspired by the TED Talk, as you mentioned, and it's about how girls and women can move past this idea of needing to strive perfer for perfection mm -hmm. and rewire themselves for bravery, to take the chances to do the things that they really want to do. It's so resonant. Uh, I had a get up the pleasure of being a guest on Reshma's podcast, and I told her before we came out here today that... Um, I've, that her book has been like my Bible for the last week because my son is an Oakland school child who is, you know, his teachers are on strike and he's been home with me and I've been working and then trying to just not have him eat ramen all the time. So not perfect. <laughs> so thank you for that, Reshma. I'm really excited about this conversation. I am too. Um, all right, let's jump right in. I want to 
I want to talk about how we got here in the first place, how we got to this obsession with perfection. And you really talk about your upbringing in this book. And um, I, I want to know, like, what are your memories as a young girl around this idea? Where do you think, as you look back, that you saw it creep in? Yeah, I mean, so my parents came here as refugees in, in 1973. So I was always striving to be the good Indian girl because I felt like they had sacrificed so much. And so I always wanted to do well in school. I always wanted to, you know, either be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer because that's what they told me would make them happy. I, you know, worked at the places where I could make a paycheck that my father would literally frame because that's what the American dream meant. And I also thought that, well, if I was the perfect Indian daughter, that I would be happy. And I woke up at age 33 working in finance Basically, I knew from the time that I was 12 that I wanted to serve, and I was doing the opposite of public service. And I remember my best friend called me. And it's funny how, like, your life is always falling apart when your best friend calls you. <laughs> so I like, walk into this windowless conference room, and I just start crying. And my friend Deepa was like, just quit. And I was like, I can do that? <laughs> And I did. Yeah. And it was the best thing I ever did. How, what's remarkable is that, you know, my story is very different from your story. Mm. And yet it still crept in. You know, you, t- you describe sort of a, you describe girls who are trained for t- straight A's and perfection and success. And uh, not so much for me. And not <laughs> so much for, you know, the girls that you interacted with sometimes at Girls Who Code. Not so much for all kinds of women. And yet. Yeah. And yet so much of your book felt so true to me. Like, how do you think it gets hardwired into so many of us, sort of regardless of our backgrounds? Yeah, I feel like it starts at the playground, Mm. right? Everybody just take a minute or more than a minute to just sit at a playground over the next week. And you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You watch the boys play and they're crawling to the top of the monkey bars and just jumping, right? Their parents are actually encouraging them to have, you know, bruises and scars and maybe even break some things. And when you watch our daughters play or our little girls play, their moms are like, be careful, honey. Don't swing too fast. Oh, sweetie, your dress is dirty. Come over to the diaper bag. Let me clean it for you. Did you take that toy away from her? Say sorry. So from the time that they are 30 months old, we are protecting and coddling our girls, and sometimes from literal physical harm. But with our boys, we're teaching them how to be tough, how to be strong, how to be fearless, how to be men. And when our girls get older, they get addicted to perfection. So they start giving up before they even try. And you see this, you know, you see this in college. I see this with my girls who code alumni, where when they just declare a major, if they get an A, if they had a B instead of an A on their introductory level course, they're done. They quit. Whereas boys are like, I got a B. That's amazing. <laughs> And so this pattern begins, and it gets worse and worse and worse, or more intense the older we get. And it's causing two really big things. One, I think perfectionism is causing us to be unhappy, right? Women are twice as likely to be depressed as men. Many of us find ourselves like me in that windowless conference room on the phone with our best friend, with everything crashing down around us. And the second thing, it's making us feel like we have to be perfect until we lead, There's a lot of celebration happening right now about 
women in Congress, but you know what? We're still only less than 25%. We had no new Fortune 500 female CEOs this year, none. You look at Silicon Valley, you look at Wall Street, you look at Main Street, and it doesn't look all that different than it did, quite frankly, when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So not much is changing, and I think because so many of us are standing on the sidelines and we're waiting to be perfect to lead. Men will apply for a job when they meet 60% of the qualifications. Women, 100. Mm-hmm. Or we're not even sending in our resume. Mm-hmm. And I know women who sometimes not even then. Right. Yeah. Now you have a young son. Mm. I have an almost 12-year-old. I wish he wanted to be a little more perfect. Thinking, <laughs> like, how can I flip this script a tiny bit? Um, But what will you be thinking about as you raise him and you have these interactions with him and you see that it's not all going to be you. It's going to be so many of these influences that he'll encounter in the world around him, you know? It's funny. When I found out I was pregnant, I, the, you know, the doctor was like, do you want to know? I'm like, oh, I know what I'm having. And no, he's like, I think she's like, I think you want to know. And I found out I was having a boy and I cried because it was like so off brand, but (laughs) it's like. You know, he can't hear us. Right. He's, He's back, back there. there. You know, um, but you know, it's funny. It's it's funny raising a son, and I have different fears for him. I don't want him to be Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. Seriously, right? I have different fears for him. You know, we're, we're living in this really interesting time right now, where you know, I've never seen more girls with like girl power T-shirts, and I've never seen more boys make them feeling like they have to be super alpha because the number one role model that we still have as children is the president of the United States and it's him. And so we as women, I, and as dads have to be super conscious of what we're putting forth. I drag my son everywhere, even though it's a pain in the ass because (laughs) he thinks that public speakers are women. He thinks CEOs are women. He thinks leaders are women he is on my hip when I'm speaking at the Women's March. You know, he is in the green room throwing M&Ms at Trevor Noah. Like, he is everywhere, right? Um, because I want him to see that and be proud of me, right? Even though it's, even though it's messy. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to throw M&Ms at Trevor Noah yeah. also. <laughs> so if I could just stand in for <laughs> that'd be great. You talk about, in the first chapter... And I think this is, re- this is really striking, this idea that being a go-getter yeah. and being gutsy are not necessarily the same thing. I mean, anyone in her right mind would look at the things you did, went to Yale, worked at financial services, premier, premier companies, you know, and say, what, what are you feeling? You know, why do you feel bad? Why do you feel like that's not the same right. as brave? That trying hard is not necessarily the same thing as being gutsy. No, because we are so damn competent. <laughs> there are so many competent women I'm staring at right now. We're go-getters, right? We go after the things that we think we can get. When you're gutsy, you go after the things that you probably aren't going to get. And that's the difference. We stop giving up before we even try. And I think that when we can figure out how to create generations of women that are gutsy, that's when things will change. How, I don't want to jump ahead too far because we're going to talk about tactics later Mm -hmm. in our conversation. But I think this parenting question is really important for for so many. I have a good friend who's in the audience with her daughter and her daughter's cousin. And 
is, and I think we're all struggling with this idea of, well, okay, how do I create high expectations? How do I create, how do you draw the line between saying, I really want you to do well in life, but I also want you to fail? Well, first of all, like throw out your parenting books. They're all wrong. And I say that really boldly, but I really strongly believe that. And I believe that, again, being in the presence of girls for the past six years and just being obsessive about this. We have thought that we are building our girls' confidence, but we're killing their resilience. Killing their resilience. You know, we often, I will see parents who put their daughters into gymnastics, but she can't do a cartwheel. So they pull them out right away and put them into soccer. They're searching for something that their girl will actually be good at so she could feel like she is incredible, amazing, and an A+. But the minute that she does something that doesn't come to her naturally, that is a little bit more challenging, it doesn't feel good. And she hasn't built the resilience to stick with it. You know, there's this great quote by Carol Dweck that says, you know, if life were one long grade school, girls would run the world. But it's not. And in the real world, it's bravery that matters. Mm -hmm. And that means to build that bravery, you got to fail a bunch of times. You have to take a ton of risks. You have to live in a place where most of the time things just don't happen for you. But it's still okay because you have enjoyed the ride. Mm -hmm. So as we move through your story, you go from crying in the conference room to running for office. To running for Congress, like that. Yeah. Yeah, no middle ground. Who do you even call? When you want to start that. I mean, yeah. I really was like, can you tell me like tactically? These yeah. books are always like, and then I ran for Congress. I'm like, yeah. okay, wait a second. There's like 30 steps in there. You know, what's crazy is like, so when I decided to run for Congress, I had been involved in politics since I was like 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And I had been going to all these Emily's List organizations and where they talked about like women should run, women should run. So I was like, oh, great. They mean me. I'm going to run. And when I thought about the congressional seat that I was going to run for, the, the congresswoman that was, in, that was there, Carolyn Maloney, was going to be running for Senate against Kirsten Gillibrand. She was going to primary her. Mm. So I was first running for an open seat, of which every political consultant told me, go for it. You're going to be amazing. You're going to win. Carolyn Maloney changes her mind. And all of a sudden, it's not an open seat anymore. But I keep hearing those voices of all these women who told me I should run. That if there's something that I had to say, if there's a difference that I wanted to make, that the way that we do that is to get more women to run. So I still decide to run, and all of those consultants said, no way. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. You will never, ever, 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 ever be able to walk down the streets in New York City if you take on the establishment. You know, I did this before AOC, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, and so it was a crazy thing to do. So here I am, no support serious abandonment from the Democratic establishment and and minor threats coming my way. Mm. And, you know, I have an immigrant family. So my parents are like, you're doing what? Like, you know, we're not supposed to call attention to ourselves. That's not what we do. And so, like, my ragtag group of friends, who my husband, who was my boyfriend at that time, you know, the only thing we knew how to do was just build a fabulous website, you know? And... (laughs) Like we built it goes one. a long way. Right, long way. Yep. Right? It was beautiful. And we raised like $50,000 from Indian aunties that were just so happy an Indian girl was running. Because <laughs> that's what else was crazy, right? I was the first Indian, South Asian American woman to ever run. Yep. And we just hustle. Yeah. And we figure it out. You know, we convinced John Legend to do a conference, a con- a concert for us. You know, Jack Dorsey does an event for me. I mean, we just hustled hard. Yeah. And we convinced people that we were going to win. 
and we didn't. Yeah, this is where like you want that story to have a happy ending. Yeah, no, no happy ending there. Yeah. Like really bad one. Um, <laughs> I raised like one point four million dollars, the most any like first time candidate had raised in the country. I get like a thousand votes. Like, don't do the math. It's not even worth it. Like, it's a horrible return on investment. I'm broke, right? I've pissed off everybody in the Democratic establishment. And I know everybody is laughing at me. And I'm sitting there the next day, like, not wanting to get out of bed. My husband, who's my boyfriend then, sorry, hiding in the hall. Um, it's so sweet. He's like making my website for like my next run. Um, and I am just like sitting there. But the first thought that I had was like, oh my God, like I'm not broken. Yeah. I failed and I'm not broken. And I had always thought that if I did something, if I took a risk and it didn't work out, that it would literally break me. Mm-hmm. And so this was a massive aha moment that not only allowed me to like entertain the next run, but also sit there and say, okay, what, what was the, I'm not going back to the private sector, right? I'm already broke, so it doesn't matter. What, what can I do to make a difference? And that's how Girls Who Code was born. Hmm. From so the depths of my bravery. It's like your Al Gore beard. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it is like my Al Gore beard. So, then Girls Who Code comes, that was a weird, that was a weird enough. I'm going to own that. I don't know where that came from. Um, then you ran again. I mean, you, you know. Yeah. So I started working after at, you started Girls Who Code and then you. At the same time. At the um, same time. So Girls Who Code. I'm just be, saying. I know. I know. I'm just saying. Right. You might be a go-getter. I know. Yeah. Gutsy go-getter. Right. Um, Girls Who Code becomes my after work hustle. Yeah. I get a job as a deputy public advocate. And I just had this, I, I was like, why aren't, and I'm, when, I, when I ran for office, I went into a lot of schools and saw a ton of boys wanting to be Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. And I was like, where are the girls? And so I would go to work, and then at lunch, I would go meet with people. People who had got their PhDs in computer science, principals, teachers, activists, organizers, and tried to learn everything there was about women in technology and like what had happened. And did that for like two years because I was a lawyer. So it was like my research project, like on the side. And, you know, at that time there was nothing. There were no organizations. People, when you said code, still thought it was like medical code, you know, like code red. Right. Um, And and so I just had this idea of starting a summer program that I would embed in a technology company. I went on GoDaddy.com bought Girls Who Code, you know, for $1.99. I mean, wow. it was the DE, and then I eventually got the COM. But anyway, I bought it for $1.99, you know, borrowed a friend's conference room, handpicked my first 20 girls, and, like, that was it. And the crazy thing was, like, I didn't code. Not yeah. even a little bit. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's nuts that, like... What uh, made yeah? What made you land on that? Like, how did tech even come into your sort of consciousness at that point? Because it feels pretty removed from... Yeah. Well, it was... It was when, as part of my race, I would go... There's the largest housing project was in my district. And I remember going there, and they had all these, like, computers, but nobody was using them. And I... And, I, and you know, my parents didn't come here for much, with much. And so I've had a job since I was 12. And I, I, I deeply believe in the American dream. And I was watching all these companies like Facebook and Twitter forming, and I just wasn't seeing women. I wasn't seeing girls like me. 
And if I felt like if there's any way to close the poverty gap in this country, it was to give girls a chance to learn a skill set that they were going to need in the future before anybody was paying attention. Like maybe we actually could level the playing field in one industry because everybody, regardless of your socioeconomic status, at that moment in 2012, wasn't learning how to code. And that was really my dream. And also when I started Girls Who Code, like the, the key component of it was to get girls to build things that would change the world. And so I felt like, listen, if, if, if I wasn't going to get to Congress, maybe I could teach a generation of girls who will solve the biggest problems that I couldn't have solved as one person. Yeah. What did you start to see then? How, you know, as you started to interact with these girls and got to know the tech world, which is its whole, which is a whole other chunk of questions. Um, how, I, I just want to know how that went. How was it building it? How, how did you feel as you started to interact with these girls and see them learn this new thing? I mean, it was, in, it was incredible because most, half of my students are, are under the poverty line. Mm-hmm. And so many of them don't have computers at home or computers in their schools. And now in our classrooms, we're like sitting next to like Melinda Gates' daughter, right? And so you're not only bringing together kids from all walks of life at a time where our schools are so segregated, but there's, when you ask them, what's the problem you want to solve? You know, Coral will say, well, my daddy has cancer and I want to find a cure for him so he can live, you know, or, you know, we'll have Trisha basically build an app on bullying because she read about a 12 year old girl who climbed to the top of a building and jumped because she was being bullied at school Mm. or another one of my students who's undocumented, who just wants to build a game because she wants to teach people to be more empathetic and compassionate. I saw so much love and inspiration and hope from my students to make a better world that I wanted to see how I, how I could help make. And that was just, and it was always magical like that. The thing that led me to this book and to this conversation, though, was that I did see in the beginning them holding themselves back because of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And the story that I tell in my TED Talk is this idea that when, they were first, when girls are first learning how to code, during the first week, most of our students have literally no experience with coding. And every teacher would tell me how a student would call her over. And she'd say, I don't know what code to write. And the teacher would look at her screen and she'd see a blank text editor. So if she didn't know any better, she thought, well, her student just spent 20 minutes just staring at a screen. But then the teacher pressed undo a few times. And she saw that she wrote code and then deleted it. This idea of perfection or bust. And this narrative kept, kept coming up. I interviewed a computer science teacher for my TED Talk, and he said to me that you know, when, when, the, when the guys are struggling with the assignment, they'll literally come into his office hours and be like, dude, the computer's broken. The computer's broken. <laughs> and the girls will walk in and be like, I'm broken. Oh. You know? Yeah. And it's, it really starts with like this voice in our head that we, we quickly go from, this is hard, to I'm stupid, I'm dumb. I can't do this. And that thing happens so fast and we miss out on so much of life. You know, this book is not about getting a raise. It's not a management book. Don't read this because you want to, I don't know, get a promotion. Read this book because you want joy in your life. I think the perfectionism is causing us to be unhappy and it's causing us to not achieve our fullest potential of what we hear in our heart and our soul. Mm-hmm. And I think that bravery is joy. When you walk down the street, many of us have walked down the street in the past week and someone has bumped into you and you've said, 
I'm sorry. Right? And then you go home and you're so pissed off. Right? Why didn't I stand up for myself? Why didn't I say something? This happens to us multitude of times a day. Imagine if you just said, hey, watch where you're walking. Right? How you would feel on the constant microaggressions that happen to you day in and day out, where you just have the courage to speak up. I think it's a game changer when we start living our life that way for all the other big stuff. Mm -hmm. I think you just, you made just now, I think a really important point too, that this is not, that brave takes a lot of different forms and Mm -hmm. the anecdotes in this book take a lot of different forms and that, that it might actually be a form of bravery for us to say, I'm good. This is enough. Yeah. I'm killing it at what I'm doing right now. And I don't have to be more. Yeah. Than this. Totally. And look, I, I use my run for Congress as like my bravery story. And, and I'm not talking about bravery on the big stage. I'm not talking about the six women run for Congress or the, all these incredible women who have taken down these powerful men in me too. I'm talking about like everyday bravery. I often feel like the most courageous thing I did for myself this past year was, you know, after I, you know, I, after I had the baby, I just could not lose the baby weight. And because of my job, I got to look at a lot of pictures and videos of me that I just didn't want to look at. And I knew in my, for, for me, I needed to get up at 7.30 in the morning and get to the gym if I was going to have a shot at liking what I saw in the morning. And that was when the dog wanted to go out and when my baby was waking up. The most courageous thing I have done for myself recently is having the courage to do something for myself and my health. And to not put Nahal, Sean, and Stanley before me. Mm-hmm. Is that your dog name, Stanley? Mm-hmm. And she's that. a girl, too. I know. Oh. Extra special. That's a really good dog name. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about perfection. Because this is something that you identified early on in these girls who were learning to code. And that was kind of really at the start of social media. Yeah. Do you, and, and you really argue strongly in the book that the perfection cycle is only getting worse. Oh my God. I mean, how it's like, look, I think we think that people's lives on Instagram are real and they're not. And so, you know, especially this idea that we think if we're polished, we're perfect. I mean, most of us take like 500 selfies to post the real one, right? It's like, dudes don't do that. They're like, dude, that's it done. Right. But all of that excessive scrolling and scrolling and scrolling causes your anxiety to spike. In a second, you know, my niece will delete a post if she doesn't get like 500 likes, right? Yeah. So social media in many ways has exacerbated this idea and that, that we are not failing and that we are not falling apart. I think this other point I talked about earlier, which is this idea is if I'm perfect, I will be happy. Mm-hmm. So when we marry the right person, guy or gal, if we have the great job, if we look the way that we're supposed to look and then we still feel like shit, mm-hmm. We're like, what is wrong with me? And so perfection doesn't create happiness. And I think that we also think that if we aren't perfect, you know, everything will fall apart. I mean, talk about mommy guilt and how that plays in. Yeah. Right? That's the one that got me. Yeah. I was like, but it will fall apart. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to argue with you in your book. (laughs) No, it's true. I mean... I'm on the thick of this book tour, this baby that I have born that I have never believed in so much. And like my son's turning four and like, I think that I have to buy a $500 rescue bot cake because it's going to matter, you know, and it doesn't, I could have just gone to Whole Foods in a second 
and it would have been done rather than researching on Etsy what the cake should look like for five hours. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and so it's this idea of like really recognizing that it, it won't fall apart if it's not done perfectly. I don't have to take a red eye mm-hmm. to get home at six in the morning so nobody judges me that I'm not dropping him off at school for the past four days. Mm-hmm. Does it, is this perfection curse, do you think, starting to pervade culture even, I mean, beyond girls? Certainly boys suffer from these same issues and I wonder how, I wonder if this is a message that's going to start to resonate even more broadly. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten that. So a lot of guys are reading my book, which is yeah. exciting and, um, and are telling me how it plays out for them. I really, I'm thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this and I got an email recently from somebody who said, you know, I think the difference between men and women when it comes to perfection is the conscious versus the subconscious. So my wife can come home and be like, I can't believe Susan doesn't like me or didn't invite me to the party. She can be, she can be you know, conscious and externally talk about her feelings about not being liked mm-hmm. or needing to please. Where he was like, you know, for me, though, it shows up with me grinding my teeth. Hmm. It's in the subconscious. Because I wasn't raised having the permission to be imperfect in many ways, or to be imperfect, but to, but to care about what other people think, mm-hmm. right? To care about what I look like, to care about what I sound like, to care about the fact that I didn't get the promotion. And so that shows up for me in, in very different ways. And I definitely think it's like something to really explore and think about. I think it's just that culturally we have been even more conditioned to embrace perfectionism because of all the images that we see and we get. Um, I want to go back to tech a little bit. Via social media. Yeah. Well, actually, let's talk about your podcast. Okay. Girls Who Code has now yeah. evolved into yeah. the podcast. Yes. Tell me about that, who you're talking to, what's, what's been great. Yeah, look, I, I think that it's, to the extent that I have any power, I think there's no point in having a platform that you can't lift other people up. Mm-hmm. And so I try to find people that nobody knows about. Right? That, that I think are amazing and awesome and that are amazing and awesome that, and give them a place and a stage to like share their story and, and, and tell their truth. And that's what I've loved. Who have been your great... Oh, my God. Who are some of the great ones? I mean, there's this incredible... <laughs> like I should have... I knew you were going to do that. Right. No, no. There's, I, I, I interviewed an incredible climate activist. You know, her name was Haven. Um, and she's doing amazing things. Uh, this woman, Amani, who runs uh, a company called Muslim Girl, who's doing incredible things and really talking about the conversation of, of, of Muslim women today. Um, there's so many amazing, amazing, amazing folks that yeah. I have spoken to. It's been fun. I spoke to AOC. Yes. Um, she's not, not known, but... She's, you know, she's going to be okay, yeah. I think. That, yeah. that kid's going places. Yeah, she is. Yeah. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. When you talk to people, do you find, do you find, does anybody ever say to you, this didn't make sense to me. I don't feel this. You know, do you ever encounter a woman who's like, nah, oh. I'm a hot mess and it's great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I, I uncover more of, um, no, I'm really brave. Like right. I'm really brave. Right. 
I uh, think I wanted to have that argument with you too, as I was reading the book. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I had this, I had this conversation with Venus Williams, right. About, I was saying, you know, a lot of like, I'm embarrassed to go to like a Beyonce dance class unless I can get like every move. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that, like, listen, I'm, I'm happy to go to Beyonce dance class as long as I'm actually dancing better than one person in that room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the athlete in her, right? Yep. But it is true. Like, I think where I have found, like, conditioned bravery is often from hmm. women and young women who have been conditioned to live at the edge of their ability and critical feedback, right? So they have a coach who's constantly telling them, do it over, do it over, do it over. Most of us don't live that way. Yeah. And so when we hear feedback, it immediately feels like it's personal. Then let's get to the tactical. This seems like a good place to get there because I do think even women who think they're brave or even, you know, a Venus Williams who's had that kind of support and that push have a thing. No, I I think that like, I think bravery is you're you're on and off the wagon. Yep. Like you may be going for weeks of being brave, but then boom, someone bumps into you and you say, I'm sorry. (sighs) And mess it all up again. That's super annoying. But you talk about the ledge. Yes. In all all seriousness, though, I think that, like, we are in a culture and a society, we focus on so much of wellness for our body, Mm -hmm. but we don't think about wellness for our mind. And I think my my brave, not perfect tactics and strategies are really about building wellness for their mind. Yeah. So the ledge. So listen, I think that a lot of us in this room have had an idea or something that we wanted to do, and we talked ourselves out of it. And then we saw someone else doing the very thing that we told ourselves that we couldn't do, do it and succeed at it. And then we're filled with so much regret and envy and it eats us up inside. I ran twice and lost twice, but when I see these amazing women running for Congress, I'm like, right on. Because I tried, but I will be honest, if I never tried, I would not be able to even turn on CNN. It would hurt too much. So what I say is like your ledge, go to the place where you feel the most envious. Go to the place, your darkest place where you feel the most envious. That's your ledge. That's your scary thing. That's the thing that you should be trying to do. Because that's the thing that's going to make you happy. Mm-hmm. The second thing I talk about is like this idea of like practicing imperfection. All of you in this room, I hope you will send an email tomorrow with a typo in it. With no emojis and no explanation points. Yes, challenge you, challenge you. But we spend so much time reading and rereading our emails. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if there is a typo in it. They don't. You have to start practicing being imperfect. The other thing I feel very strongly about is this idea of like doing something you suck at. Not for the sake of getting better at it, for, for knowing what it's like to feel mediocre. Right? Sorry. My husband loves tennis. He sucks at it, right? (laughs) But he loves it. There's a lot of guys in this room. Golf, tennis, fantasy football, whatever your thing is, right? You're not good, but you like it. And so you continue to do it. We don't have things like that. We don't have hobbies that we just like to do. We have to be good at it. We won't even go to soul cycle class till we're in shape. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? So I have started... I have started to do things that, like, I'm never going to be good at. Surfing. Can't even get on the board. Like, a five-year-old is passing me, like, you know, handstanding, right? And I'm, like, crying. Like, try- I'm never going to be good at it, but it feels nice to try. Yoga. Can't do a handstand. Can barely do a child's pose, right? <laughs> but I like that Shavasana stuff, right? I love that. that. So, yes. like, 
I want to go to yoga. Yep. Yoga nap. Totally. Call it. Love it. Mm-hmm. I know. It's the greatest. I found one that the whole class is a yoga nap. It's amazing. <gasps> yeah. Come visit me in New York. We'll exchange but, cards later. This idea of like doing something you suck at. And yep. it's for parents, it's the same thing. Like it, put your daughter in something that she's never going to be good at. And stay, keep her there. Let her know what it's like to just be okay. Not great. Hmm. I don't know if I can do the typo thing, but I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> see what you're saying. <laughs> you also say, as with so many things in life, it is about building a team. Mm. Like your failure team. Yeah. Kind of your friends who are there to support you in your... It, and give you permission, I think, right? To not be so great at something. Yeah, and to tell you the truth. Yeah. You know, one of the, I, I remember after I lost my second race, I had to go speak at a rally and it was like raining outside and Sean was like tipping on my, you know, on my dress and like, and the woman that I lost to, of course, was speaking before me and she was like, amazing. And I'm like, God damn it. And I go and, you know, and I just do my thing and I wasn't good at all. And I knew I wasn't good. And I get in the car and I turned to my husband, Nahal, and I was like, how'd I do? And he's like, you sucked, you know? But he is yeah. part of, like, and not just him, but Charlotte, Nicole, Gloria, people who were sitting in my team. Everybody knows not to tell me how amazing I am, but what I could have done better. And sometimes at my worst moments, right, when I really want to hear, you lied to me, I want you to tell me the truth yeah. because I need to hear it. And so you need people around you who are going to do that and people around you who are going to push you to fail, who are going to encourage you to take risks, who are going to help you stay honest to what your truth and what your dreams are. Let's talk about running for office. Yeah. Because here we are now. I know. I mean, you got to be thinking about it. You know, look, I will run again one day. But I think that I want to make a difference. And I can see the difference that I make every single day at Girls Who Code Mm -hmm. and through this book. Mm -hmm. And, like, I really feel like for me, like, I have never started something and felt the way that I feel about this movement about being brave, not perfect as I did when I started girls who code. If one day I feel like that about running for office and I feel so needed and that though it needs that Reshma and not the other amazing women who are doing it and kicking ass at it, Mm -hmm. then I will run. But right here, this is where I'm at. This is where I feel like I can actually make the most amount of change. Yeah. What's next? What more do you want us to know about Girls Who Code and making that difference? Because this is a conversation, you know, we're here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, we're here in San Francisco. We've got to stop doing that. We're here in San Francisco, but this conversation feels so intractable sometimes. I mean, it really does. It feels yeah. like so hard to make this progress. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the, the bo- where I am at right now is, look, it's not a pipeline problem anymore. We have to stop talking about the fact that we don't have enough girls because we just taught 185,000 and there are 20,000 of them that are freshmen and majoring in computer science, like right now. And mind you, 10,000 women graduated in CS last year. So we, we got women. The problem that we have focus on now is will you hire them? And, you know, a couple of years ago, I started getting emails from my students saying, I'm at MIT. I'm at Stanford. I'm at CUNY. I'm at Berkeley. I'm at state. I got a 4.0, I got a 3.9. I applied to said company and I couldn't even get an interview. Hmm. So I would take that email and I would send it to said company and say, what happened here? 
Okay, didn't like the response. All right, one email turned into 10, turned into 50, turned into a lot more. So I asked my students uh, in a survey to tell me where they applied and what their experience was. And I didn't like what I heard. Um, Our cultures are incredibly broken. They're sexist and they're racist and they need to change. And we have to be very honest about whether they want to change. Mm -hmm. And I, as a CEO, need to reflect on whether I can continue to keep sending my, my students to companies that I don't see changing, or whether instead I should try to find the ones that will or encourage them to start their own companies. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in this reflection moment about really thinking about that. But the other part of the equation that I do think that I can influence and change is the fact, the voice in their heads. See, if you're in an industry that tells you that you have to be super brilliant to get a job, the minute you make a mistake, you go from, I made a mistake, to I'm dumb, to I can't do it. And so, so much of this book is written for my my alumni who are in that moment right now so they can start calming and shutting down that voice in their head that tells them that they're not smart enough and they're not good enough and they start giving up before they even try. Mm. Because 50% of women will drop out of their STEM major before they graduate. And it's often because of the fact about not their actual performance, but their perceived performance. And so that is what the opportunity, and it's the same thing that's happening in workplaces right now. And if you're in an ecosystem that's already threatened by you, because we're coming and we're coming strong, and there's a lot of us, they can help manipulate, again, your own feelings or lack of feelings about your self-worth and your confidence and your ability. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's work. And that's why I'm so, I'm so focused on this idea of learning how to be brave, not perfect, because I think if you can overcome that, then I think we can start fighting the structures mm-hmm. at that level. We're going to um, take questions in about five minutes. So if you just want to like, look, we got a hopper. If you want to line up uh, in, the, in the middle here, and as, soon as we get, <laughs> and as soon as we get a little critical mass in about five minutes, there's some, Marissa's in the back there, right? Anyway, so, so kind of like find your way to the middle and a microphone will come to you and we'll move to questions. Um, is that going to suggest girls who fund, girls who found you know what? Yeah. Because it do you feel like we need to sort of move up the ladder of this culture? Well, I think that we had this powerful conversation about this in LA last night. Actually, there are amazing, you know, female founders fund. Mm-hmm. You know, there are amazing, amazing uh, VC funds out there that are really solely focused on women. Yeah. You know, I think the thing is, is we need more capital in those spaces. We talked about this. There's, there's 20 yeah. black women in the entire country that have gotten more than a million dollars in seed funding. That's pathetic. Yep. It's like unjust, wrong. We were saying that they all fit on one magazine cover. Yeah. And every the time they go put yep. themselves out there too, it's like they get so, it's so hard. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to get better at being able to take risks as women and start funding companies, you know, at higher rates and higher levels, because uh, look, they're not going to let us in. Yeah. They're not going to let us in. Yeah. And so at some point, and and I've done this in my own life, I've always created my own destiny. I have never been, I've never asked for the gates to open because I know they never will. 
and, 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 and no one, you know, it's funny, you know, even at girls who code, it's like, we have proven our model a thousand fourth and I still have to beg for every dollar that we get. I still have to justify the work that we do. I still have men tell me that, are you sure girls and boys brains aren't built differently? I still engage in these conversations on like a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, things, and, and, and I understand it. You know, we are asking for a revolutionary change in the dynamic or the composition of what a traditional you know, tech company looks like. And people don't give up power. Name me an example of one industry where people have given up power. Yeah. Anybody want to follow that with a question? I see one person in the middle here. Uh, if you have a question, please come line up in the back of the room. Oh, I'm sorry. Come to the back of the room. That was my fault. There's a microphone back there. I have a question. That's the lights. Hi. Um, I was wondering at what point did you kind of pause and look back at everything that had happened to your life and kind of synthesize this into this concept of these things were happening because I was not brave or these changes happened because I was brave? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for me it was, it, was, it, it was running for office and like the fact that it had taken me so long to make that decision and I had let myself be miserable for so long. Um, and it took so long for me to develop that courage. But then once I did, then the eye opener was like, like, I, I say whatever the hell I want without consequences. And I didn't, it wasn't like that. And so I think I started developing a practice in like every decision that I make to take the braver choice. You know, I talk about one of the, you know, one of the things in my book, and this goes to girls who code, you know, when I first, um, you know, after president Trump was elected, uh, I worked on Hillary's campaign. I mean, I've worked for her since I was 18 years old. So it was brutal. And I remember the first uh, week or two into his uh, administration, I got a call from Ivanka Trump's office saying, you know, Ivanka would like to invest in Girls Who Code. Hundreds of millions of dollars. This is the issue that she wants to care about. She'd like to meet with you. So I'm like, shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> and... I very clearly said, okay, I got to put on my Girls Who Code hat. And, and listen, probably half of my students' parents voted for Trump. And we serve everybody. And I said, okay, here are my conditions at that moment. I, I will not meet with her if there is a Muslim ban. And if we um, continue to threaten to deport undocumented students because I have a lot of Muslim students, and I have a lot of undocumented students. Don't worry, Miss Johnny, it's not going to happen. Four days later, right, the ban happens. So I had to pick up the phone, talk to my board, and, you know, basically say, no effing way am I walking for any amount of money or any amount of support. And so I didn't. Um, of course, nine months later, another organization who also teaches girls to code builds a partnership with Mr. Trump. And the vast majority of my companies, because Girls to Code is 90% corporate funded, also signed on to that proposal, which I felt by now were like nine months into the administration. My trans students, my gay students, my black students, my Latino students, my white poor, everybody, everybody, every girl 
is being disparaged by this administration. And so I decided that the right thing, the ethical thing, the moral thing for me to do was to take a stand and write an op-ed and basically take the position that this is not about politics. This is about right and wrong. What side of history do we want to be on? And I had to call out my partners and then send an email, Ginny Rometty, Cheryl Sandberg, Mary Barra, And I was shaking while I'm doing this because I have the responsibility of hundreds of thousands of girls. And if these companies pull out their support, I don't know what I would, you know what I mean? Like, but it was the right, brave thing to do. And some of them did. And, you know, and it's fine because I don't want your money. (laughs) But, you know, I think, I mean, I, I say this because like, I often feel like even once I decided I want to live my life that way, you still have choices, and I still have committed to myself that at every point I will pick the braver choice, even when it's scary as hell. We got one more back there. Thanks. Amazing. Uh, What can I do to help? Oh. Well, I see that you're a man, so that's exciting. Uh, uh, so listen, I, I, you know, men, 40% of girls who coach teachers are, are men. Like men, dads, guys, they're like quintessential to this movement that we're building at Girls of Code, and it's quintessential to the bravery movement. You know, one of the best things that happened last year was like I was visiting the Rochester Institute of Technology, and I walk into the women in computing group, and there's like three dudes there. And I'm like, who are you? And they're like, we're the men who support the women in computing group. Like, they had formed a club. It was amazing. Form a club. Form a club. I'm serious. Form a bravery club. My friend Toronto Burke always says, listen, courage is contagious in this moment for women, but it hasn't been so contagious for men. A lot of men in this room have probably been in a boardroom or an office or in a conversation, and someone has made a joke that's inappropriate, that made you feel a little uncomfortable. And you went home and you told your partner, man, or your, I I can't believe that. But you didn't say anything at that moment. You have to start speaking up. You can't put it all on us. You have to start speaking up. And sometimes you just have to shut up. (laughs) Right? I have a board, (laughs) I have a board that's half men, and sometimes I'm like, just be quiet. You know, because studies show that like in meetings, men talk 80% of the time. And so like, give us a moment to be brave. And then when, because this happens, when we are brave and we fail, because we will, and you have an opportunity to stand up when we are being penalized for it, because women will be more penalized for failure than men will, be an ally, be an advocate. There's a lot that men can do in this moment, but it requires you to be requires you to be brave too. We have a question. We have a question from a viewer online. How can managers or mentors help support bravery over perfection? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know creating a culture where uh, you know failure is rewarded. 
You know, it, it is true that women are more penalized, and especially women of color are more penalized, you know, for taking risks and for them not working out. You know, in Silicon Valley, like, you, if you're a guy, you, like, you won't even get funding unless you've had three failed startups, right? And when it's women, it's like, oh, you know, what happened there? So I, I think that you have to create a culture where at, women are not being penalized for, for taking risks and for failing. Are there other questions for Reshma? This is going to be our last question. Okay. All right, somebody make it good. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> no pressure. Cool, I got one. Don't be perfect. Thank you. <laughs> what are the things that you tell yourself or the people that you love or your team when you notice that they're on that ledge or you're on that ledge and you're like, oh, I'm so freaking scared. <laughs> but I want it so bad. Yeah, I, th- I, I ask them to ask themselves, if they don't do it, how will they feel? Right? Because that's the place where we have to go. And all of us have people like that in our lives that you can see like almost their soul is just <clears throat> dying slowly because they're not living the life that they want to live. And I can say as someone who has not succeeded at a lot of things, right, that it's much easier to, to try than to give up. I went through this, you know, um, I went through this in trying to get pregnant and have a baby. And there were moments where I'm just like, you know, fifth round of IVF, like just beaten down, where I'm just like, I'm not going to give up. Because the, the reality for me of giving up was much harder to deal with, right, than the pain that it was taking me to just try. And so that's where I go. And that's what I tell my, where I tell my team to go to. Like, I, I think that, like, this is why I say bravery is joyful. And it is true that, like, bravery should feel like a moonshot. Like, this isn't a guaranteed thing. It's actually a guaranteed unlikely thing. But there is something about feeling happy that you actually tried. I want to leave you with one story. I, um, I met this woman who was a diver for the Olympics. And it was her last chance to make the Olympics. And she was at her trial. And she goes up and she takes her dive and it just falls flat. It's done. Like her dream is over. There's no other try. Entire pool clears. She's sitting there. Her boyfriend's like tapping his feet like, come on. And she's like, give me a moment. She goes up. She does her dive. And it's perfect. She did that for herself. Her dream was done. But she wanted to prove to herself that she could do it. Live your life that way. I promise you, you will be happier. All right, we have, I know that was like the most remarkable place to end. However, (laughs) even if you have to say all that again, there is an in-forum tradition to ask every speaker, you know about this, you've been dreading it this whole time. No, 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 no. Okay, the following question, which is this, what is your 60 second idea? Do we have like a timer? That would be awesome. No, I'm such a radio girl. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? To make women to live their life brave, not perfect. Five seconds.
Rashma Sarjani, everyone. Thank you. Well done. Reshma is, uh, thank you, Reshma, thank for you. joining us. At Thanks, Ma- and can we give a huge round of applause for Molly? She was amazing. Um, please join Reshma in the lobby. She's going to be signing copies of the book, which is wonderful. You will want to yell at it. You will be in denial. You will learn so much about yourself. It's a journey. <laughs> Thanks, Reshma. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.